ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You know, sometimes on the minefield we like to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Occasionally we just like to let people take a broadside at one of life's great joys. That, I think, is what's about to happen on this particular show. Waleed Ali is my name. Defender of all that is good, Scott Stevens is my grumpy co-host. She seeks to tear it down and has conscripted a guest, a wonderful guest I should say, into his service. Hi, Scott. Hi, Waleed. So... In the past, I've, I've felt a certain solidarity with you. You know, the two of us up on the balcony at the side of Muppet Theatre, occasionally chuckling and chortling or, you know, whatever. I, I do feel that you have joined the Muppets on the stage and I'm here on my own. That's... <laughs> the, just, just for the show or you mean in general? Well, I, I don't know. Tell me, is this a, is this a breakup? Is, is this sort of Beatles post-White Album or what, no, what's going I don't, on here? No, I don't think so. We do have certain points of quite pronounced divergence. Of course. The moral relevance of intention is one of them. Yeah. Uh, sport yep. is another. And it turns out today's topic. Yeah. So here, here's one of the things that puzzles me. Um, this isn't exactly today's topic, but it's getting pretty damn close. I've always wondered about the moral relevance of dispositions or the moral relevance of personality. So you, you would have to say that a very fine philosopher is someone who is able to think their way or to reason their way out of what might be a personal predilection, a personal taste, and be able to see the merits of another position, even a contrary position, or that's able to see the weaknesses, the shortcomings of their own disposition. Something we've talked about on the show previously, Montaigne, a figure I'm just going to flag, by the way, is going to come up a few times in this show. Montaigne was famously down on his own inherent or what he described as his natural goodness. He just said, you know, I'm not a violent person. I'm a naturally self-deprecating, self-giving, other person-centered person. And he didn't see that as virtuous. He just saw it as, you know, essentially kind of accident of his upbringing and of his disposition. I don't want to say character because character is something that's forged oppositionally. It's something that you work on. He didn't think that he had to try to be good. He just was. And so he held his own, quote unquote, goodness in fairly low regard. Another question, Iris Murdoch, someone who I love, if you hold her personal life and her dealings with others up to the scrutiny of her self-proclaimed philosophical stances and the things that she valued most, she comes up wanting does that discredit who she was and what she worked on and the sum of her life's labor trying to bring moral philosophy back into everyday life and into ordinary language? Or does it discredit it? So I think that the tension between who we are, our kind of innate dispositions, and what it is we value and the way that we try to articulate those values, that's a, a constant source of puzzlement for me. There are certain things that I value deeply that in my personal life to be perfectly frank, I detest. <laughs> and I see that as a great failing on my part, that I'm just not sort of living up emotionally to what it is that I'm supposed to be in terms of the mental world that I've tried to cultivate. So that brings us, I think, to this topic. You are an inveterate traveler. You love it, don't you? Mm. Why? I'm curious. 
You're asking that as though you think no, you no, know no. the answer. No, I honestly don't. I honestly, I'm, I'm wondering what it is that you love about travel and why it is you seize opportunities for travel whenever you can. I'm not asking you to defend yourself, by the way. Well, it is not that, that you was, are. As right, if, this is on, the equivalent of like picking your toenails in public. I, I don't think no, anything that, like that. Let's just be honest. That's exactly what you're asking no, me to do. No, it's not. Um, the problem with this is very often what you love is instinctive. Hmm. And so it feels to me like there's no real way to do justice to it by explicit explanation. And there are so many factors to it. And so I end up in this situation where the only way I can answer that question is to resort to what will sound immediately like a bunch of cliches. So I suspect what will happen is as you launch your attack, new dimensions, like it will become clearer to me. Do you okay. know what I mean? Okay, sure. That, I suspect that's what will happen. But generally speaking, I think what it is that I like about it, apart from the obvious sort of sensory element, right, this idea of the senses being overwhelmed by things that are new and different and the idea that it expands in a real way that you can't pick up from books or mm. other sort of more distant ways of accumulating information. It expands the senses of what is possible and what is real. And it also, I think, casts, I find anyway, it casts new light on your everyday circumstances, mm. right? So it's amazing how often it changes the way I view my life at home and even the, just the place that I live because I have more direct points of comparison to it. And obviously that will depend a bit on how you travel and so on. And, you know, there's a distinction that I'm sure will emerge in this show between travel and tourism and mm -hmm. so on. I do think tourism gets a bad name, by the way. I'm not one of those people who thinks the best way to travel is to avoid everything that tourists go and see. Because sometimes I think they've become things that tourists see for a reason, actually. Mm -hmm. Not always the case, but, but I think often the case. So there is something about, I think, being confronted with the range of things. And that is true when you visit somewhere that is quite radically different to where you live. But it's also true in a not insignificant way when you visit places that are meant to be quite similar. Mm. There's something about the the noticing of small differences. It's like the Some uncanny the, valley effect. Well, not so much that as like sometimes I've understood Australia better precisely because I've just spent a few weeks in the United States or yeah, yeah. Great Britain, right? Societies that you might regard as more or less equivalent, mm, mm. they're actually not. They're different in important ways, not in the ways that you would experience the difference if you went to, I don't know, Japan or, I mean, first time I, as an adult, I went to Egypt, which is where my family's from. You know, there's a certain culture shock that goes on there. And so there's a, there's a, a very obvious almost jarring that happens there. Mm. So you don't experience it in that way, but it's in some ways it's the educational effect of small differences. that. So it's almost no matter where you go, I find there is something, it, it informs something about not just the world and your understanding of the world, but even of, of your home. I think that's part of it. And then there are just certain things about watching other cultures in operation, even if they're in even if what you're getting is a caricature or it's mm. the tiniest glimpse or whatever. And you, you, you know that, right? But a caricature of something that is actually quite different, I think is still, there's something about that that penetrates. And yeah, the effect of that withers away and so on, but there's something of that that penetrates. I, I've always found, this isn't true of every trip I've ever made, but I've always found that the thoughts that I have you know, every now and again you have a thought and you go, oh, that's a bit of a breakthrough for me. Like, I could write something about that that would actually be 
useful to me, if not the reader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's actually, that's a good thought by my standards, not necessarily by an absolute standard, but by my standards, that's a good thought. I've found they have overwhelmingly come when I've been traveling. Interesting. They come in two contexts, when I travel and when I find myself engaged in a really good conversation with someone wherever I am in the world, whether it's here or, or elsewhere. But it takes that, I think, for me anyway, to arrive at those things. So, yeah. look, that's a thumbnail sketch. As you assail each of these points, I think more shades of nuance will emerge. Okay, okay. Well, you're, you're setting me up to be kind of, to be overweeningly grumpy here, which I, I don't think I'm necessarily going to be. I will just say at the outset, the way that you describe the process of going away and it casting a different light on home, on what you're used to, I think there is something quite powerful about that. And I would just point out that someone like Montaigne, I mean, my favorite of all of his essays, is called A Vanity. It's an extraordinary piece that almost has nothing to do with vanity, but it is all about the process of self-discovery and his recognition of his own weaknesses and kind of tacit forms of self-deception or prejudice. He says, you know, I'm naturally a homebody, but at home, things begin to annoy me after a while everyday things, the things that deep down I most dearly love, and they just start annoying me. And I dread the prospect of spending money, and spending money is a big thing for him, spending money and going elsewhere. But once I do, once I'm in motion and away, and I get a bit of distance from what I love best, and I hear the way that other people speak and the way that other people live, and I find things where I don't expect them, and I don't find things where I do expect them. He says, when I come back, I come back not quite as a stranger, but rather as someone who has fallen in love all over again with what I know and with what I love best. And and the opposite, by the way. Yeah, it's true. The opposite can happen. I'm not saying Montaigne says that, but... So I think there, there is something there about the process of, you know, he finds something irritating and then he goes in motion and he returns to where he began, but he doesn't necessarily return as the same person. And yet neither has he completely entered into the other places where he's been. In other words, the whole thing is about his own, I wouldn't exactly say change or transformation, but certainly home appears in a different light. I think there is something about that, but it has to begin with a very strong sense, I believe, of rootedness or of at-homeness. And I'll I'll just say, Willie, just to kind of put all my cards on on the table, I mean, I grew up in a manner, I was raised in a manner that was entirely without roots. Uh, It was something that, it was part of the way that we were brought up quite intentionally. Indeed. Uh, Every time I speak to you, it seems I learn that you lived in another country for some extended period of time. Yeah, yeah. It's quite remarkable. I don't don't know many people like this, but yes, Um, I know what you're saying. uh, But just always moving. I mean, my my father's idea of a good holiday was as soon as sort of work is done or as soon as study is finished. Uh, I mean, we lived in a caravan, for God's sake. We got up and we drove for months. Um, And so, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to confess that beneath all of this, is a feeling on the one hand that I've never been quite at home. And I still feel that in Australia. I mean, my my God, I've been here for 32 years and I still don't feel at home. I still feel like an imposter, like someone who doesn't quite belong, like someone who's going to sort of stick Mm. out. And yet, and yet I want to be here more than any place else. I want to have roots here. And there are things that I 
that I discover about being here that gives me the sense that there's something new to discover almost every day. And I, I love that. I love that. And so I, I realize that I have a disposition against wanting to be on the move, uh, against wanting what, to What's travel. fascinating about what you just said, though, is the idea of wanting to discover something new every day. That's usually what you say about the impulse to travel, not the impulse to be at home. Mm, that's right. So yeah. this is very strange. I feel like you're arguing the opposite case to the opposite end. Sorry, that was a badly constructed sentence. No, no, I no, because I, I, think, I think novelty is fundamentally illusory. Novelty is spectator. Novelty, it can be little more than distraction. Whereas there are discoveries that are yielded to intimate knowledge that are never there through the performance of novelties, which brings me to my second point. I hate people doing things for me. And I hate ever feeling that somebody is subservient to my wishes or exists for my pleasure. I hate it. I absolutely despise it. Being at a restaurant fills me with... And do you know how many times I almost feel the compulsion to take my dishes from the table <laughs> to the kitchen so that the person coming to get the dishes doesn't have to worry? I actually feel I guilty. I think you should, Scott. I want to see you do it. I'll do it. Next time you and I yeah. have, have dinner, I will. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to see this. Yeah. And it's a feeling that I cannot shake. And that, to be perfectly frank, I do not want to shake when I'm traveling and immersed in the globalized service industry that is synonymous with the fact of tourism. The idea that people exist, that places are transformed in order to exist, and that entire economies revolve around this temporary leisure class that roam over places in either their small numbers in some places or in their hordes in others. The idea that people in these places with their own traditions, with their own culture, with their discrete ways of living, their own forms of familiarity and quotidian intimacy, the fact that these are, if you like, turned inside out and now exist as performances in order to make the people who have come to see some novelty, who's come to see something different, Waleed, honest to God, it makes my skin crawl. And it makes my skin crawl even more because it takes place under the shared illusion or the mutual form of deceit that people are going to these places in order to see something. Okay, I don't think anybody thinks that these forms of performance are authentic, but they go in order to see something exotic, something a little bit out of the ordinary, something that's going to titillate, something that's going to fascinate, and then move you on your way feeling like you've actually done something, if not worthwhile, then something that at least passes okay, so the time. Be more specific about this, right? I go to Rome and I see the Colosseum and the Forum and, I don't know, the Baths of Caracalla and whatever. Put what you're saying in concrete terms around that experience. I mean, these are monuments. These are forms of architecture. These are sites. These are spectacles. And what we are drawn to by them is the desire to see something that is larger than quotidian life, maybe something that is of world historical value or significance, and that having seen it will leave us in some fundamental way changed as the result or marked by the experience. And maybe. That may be what we want, or maybe we just want to see for ourselves ancient Rome okay, and sort of what's left of it. But I mean the point you made earlier. Yeah. What's the sort of inauthentic cultural spectacle? I can't remember the phrasing you used, but you 
you were playing in that area. Like, I think it's easy to say these things at a general level, but I, I want you to point out the bits to me that are so debauched about this process. Okay, no, all I mean, debauched isn't, isn't my term. What I mean is that the artificiality of tourism is met by the artificiality of performance, which means that on both levels, it's a kind of transitory, mutually agreed-upon illusion that meet at the point of a kind of feigned exoticism or a feigned difference from the ordinary, a difference from the okay, everyday. Okay, so I, I get the idea of that. I just want you to be concrete about it in that example. Okay. I've lived in places that thrive upon or rely on a certain degree of orientation for and for the sake of tourists. And you know the disdain and the disdainfulness that is expressed when the tourists pass on and move on their way. I always worry about a kind of cultural turning of itself inside out, such that it exists not for itself and for the care of its people, but rather that exists for the sake of those who are passing through and who are passing by, which then also makes me worry about the motivations of those who are passing through and passing by. What is it yeah, exactly? Yeah, but I, I get this, but you're still talking at the level of journey. Is Italy merely a performance? No, it's is not. Is Italy an inauthentic country that's been damaged by people sort of transiently seeking an injection of the exotic? It's probably the most visited country in the world or one of them. Yes, that's right. It has the biggest problems of over-tourism. I think you could point to a place like Venice as the highlight of the market. That's exactly right. Example of this. I just wonder if the case, by expressing it in overarching principle, I wonder if the case is being vastly overstated here. Well, you see, then, if you couple this concern with sort of both transience, inauthenticity, and performance, if you then couple that with the fact of the effect of unnecessary global travel on our common home, what all this leaves me wondering, and this is where, I, again, I'm trying to be perfectly forthright with the fact that there are certain things because of my own disposition that irk me about being seen to be and, in fact, being a tourist or being a, an unnecessary traveler through these spaces. You couple that, however, with the reality of environmental degradation as the result of unnecessary global travel. And it leads me with this simple question. If there is little more than a kind of exchange of inauthenticities that takes place through the act of tourism, and if that then has the cost that it does, is there not a powerful case to be made, as in a slightly satirical vein Dave Eggers did in his novel The Every? Would there be something somehow wrong or objectionable to the prospect of, say, virtual travel? where you don a headset and you get someone to take you through a city like Venice. Now, I realize that that raises other issues like the cost in the form of a gig economy. I realize that. But if there's something inherently superficial in the fact of tourism, in the act of tourism, and the cost to the planet is what it is, and it gives us the painful experience for some of us, and I think it should be more painful to others, of having other people exist for my sake and having to be performers for my enjoyment. If you put all those things together and it ends up being both a costly and a fundamentally superficial experience, then doesn't that mean that there is something profoundly morally unhinged 
and perhaps even unhinging about the practice of tourism itself. There's a lot of ifs yes, there in are. what you've just proposed. I can think of this exchange of inauthenticities at very specific sites. So if you were to say, like Venice, I've given you the example of that, or if I were to say around the pyramids, maybe, or right around the Colosseum or whatever. But I just think that's an inaccurate characterization of the way tourism actually works because tourism is never confined to those particular sites. Mm, that's right. Venice is probably the outlier because Venice you do feel like you're in a theme park and you kind of can't escape the theme parkness of it. And so everyone's visiting this place and you do get the sense that in the end there's no place to visit. It's a gathering of tourists. Unless, I mean, I, when I went there it was in the winter, maybe it was a little bit different, but still. So I would concede on a, on a place like that, but that's actually a pretty rare exception in the world of travel. Everyone I know who travels, they end up telling stories about the little incidental things that happened along the way. Hmm. Right. It's the people they run into unexpectedly, often locals. In other words, the, the reason that virtual travel doesn't work or doesn't offer the same thing at the very least is that unless it's done extraordinarily well, <laughs> um, it doesn't actually offer those incidental things that are where I think travel gets its stickiness. If all you were really doing was living up to the caricature that I think you're painting here of everyone shuffled onto buses having nothing to do with anybody until they turn up at the postcard site and they go and take their photo that resembles the postcard exactly if they're lucky and then they get back on the bus and everyone has a completely inauthentic experience. Meanwhile, the locals don dress they would never actually wear in order to offer selfies at exorbitant prices for people. Like if that were what travel is, yeah, you would have a point. It's just not, though. Mm. Like I, ju I just don't know people who actually, when they travel, have that experience. Sure, but that is what, what, it, what you just described then. That also is an exaggeration of what I was saying. I, but that's why I asked for concrete examples of it. Like, So is Rome an inauthentic place? Would you say that the culture of Rome or the culture of Italy is inauthentic and has been so affected by its, its high level of tourism that basically all that's happening is an exchange of inauthenticities? Or would you say that actually a lot of people go to Italy, they might be on the tourist trail, they might even fall into certain tourist traps, but they are very frequently enchanted by the culture that they find there that does go on with or without them? Hmm. I mean, that, what would you think is a more accurate description of what actually happens? I don't, I don't think, and I don't think I've ever said that Italian culture is somehow a debauched culture as a result of the fact that tourists descend on it in their hundreds of thousands every year. My primary concern is actually the effect that tourism has, I mean, I think quite self-evidently on the planet. But even beyond okay, but that's that... Not you, that's not where you started. But I, know, I know, even beyond that, I worry about the effect that tourism has on, if I can put it this kind of overweening way, on the souls of the tourists themselves. It seems to me that you have to be extraordinarily attentive, that you have to be less inured to one's desire for spectacle, for novelty, for sufficient familiarity, which is enough to make the transaction involved in tourism work. In other words, you can't just have unusualness. You can't have alienness. You have to have familiarity coupled with just enough exoticism, coupled with just enough that's performed, as well as just enough that's spontaneous. All of those things work together, I think, in a way that makes, let's call it experiential capitalism, payment for experience that mere commodity cannot convey to oneself. 
It just makes the entire thing, I think, not just dubious, but I think even more than that, what is it exactly that the tourist is hoping to gain from the process? I mean, you're right. There might be the incidental encounter. There might be the off-the-beaten-track experience at a restaurant. There might be something where, yeah, this isn't where, quote-unquote, tourists go, but I discovered it nonetheless. That requires, I think... No, no, sometimes you experience it even where tourists go. This is my point. Yeah. What I'm objecting to is this idea of an exchange of inauthenticities as though that's the defining characteristic of travel. I accept that it happens, but I don't accept that as the, the defining characteristic of travel. I just... I just think that's incorrect. Okay. That's why I kept pushing for the concrete example of it. I get the theory you're outlining, and I see that on paper it makes sense, but I just don't know many travellers who would relate to it, who would go, yeah, that actually does characterise what I do. By the way, this is the reason I have such a problem with resorts. We've had this mm, discussion. I, I, I really d- detest resorts, and one of the reasons I detest resorts is that they do this, in most cases, I think there are the odd exception, but like they really do create a kind of hermetically sealed bubble from the surrounding culture. I think one of the things that happens even with tourism and with sort of well-trodden tourist trails is that interactions with culture kind of happen incidentally. In not all cases are those things debauched or inauthentic. What also I would say is, have you ever been to a place that has lost its tourism? Yes, yes, I have. I've lived there. Mm. It's a desperately sad thing. It is, but but again, there are reasons. I know reasons. what you're going to say is that's because it was built upon this thing and, like, okay. You often Tell have people, people that have been brought into a place because of the immediate injection of money and then the erection of certain structures in order to cater for tourists. And you already have certain forms of displacement. You have certain forms of environmental damage. And then something has been built in the hopes that people will come and then people don't come. And it's the same experiences, for instance, in some of the Southwest Pacific, where, for instance, uh, students are brought from outlying islands to a school. And then having gone through a particular boarding school or residential school, they then have nothing to do with their degree. And they have no employment then to be able to find. It's the same paradox and it's the same principle of a form of degradation that follows a form of construction, where that form of construction, I think, was fundamentally not necessary in the first place. Yeah, I'm thinking of a place like Luxor, one of the glories of the world. I just don't relate to that description of it. Hmm. And the people I met there, right, and I interact with them in perhaps a slightly different way to other tourists because of my Egyptian background, okay. But hmm, the immense pride they had in their place... Hmm. And the sadness they felt at the fact that people weren't coming because they felt that it wasn't a safe place. This is pre-COVID, by the way. Yes. Uh, Something elemental about that that I think just gets too easily swept away. Fair enough. I mean, you could follow the Bataan example. Like, what did Bataan do? We basically don't want tourists. We're going to charge them 200 US dollars a day to come because what we want is high-value, low-impact tourism. Hmm, okay. A lot of people want to leave Bataan. They're all trying to come here. Mm. I just think it's very easy to overstate the sort of the virtues of being untouched or remaining authentic according to a theory that I just don't know. I just think when it comes to concrete terms, I'm not totally convinced. Anyway, you're about to have an ally who will no doubt eviscerate me anyway. So I look forward to this. And our guest is one of our favourites. Agnes Callard is Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Chicago. Agnes, thank you so much for coming back on The Minefield, which we'd love to have you anytime, but this particular time... It's because of a fabulous piece that you wrote in the New Yorker magazine, that great academic journal, uh, called The Case Against Travel. Now, Agnes, I'm in no way assuming that you share my grump, 
grumpiness. I don't think I've been overly grumpy, but there, there is a kind of disposition that I've tried to say is my own, and I'm not trying to project that onto you. With all that said, the stage is yours. Take us where you want to go. Well, I was really interested in your sort of description of the idea of a culture that is putting on a performance. And it was, you know, sort of occurring to me, I somehow brought to mind the sociologist Irving Goffman, who just thinks that's what everything is. Mm, that's that's right. what life is. Life is performance. Right now, we are performing for each other. And we're also performing for an audience that's going to be listening to us. We're saying, in some sense, the words that we think they expect us to say, speaking in ways that are sort of predictable, putting on a good show. But, you know, from Goffman's point of view, the same is true of a waiter at a restaurant, like service people generally. And so that's just like a general fact about life. And then the question would be, what over and above that kind of universal a performative aspect of human life is present with travel. And I think there is something, I do think that the uh, when there are a lot of tourists in an area, then the people in that area understand that they are performing for tourists over and above the performances that they would be doing, right? And I, I guess my, the way I would think about that is not that performance is per se bad, but that it's actually bad to perform for ignorant people. And that's what tourists are. So the people in your culture know how the performance is supposed to go. They're, they're like um, connoisseurs of it, right? So like, say you're in Rome, right? And, you're, and you've got a restaurant. Now the question is, where is that restaurant? Is it in the tourist, very touristy area or not? And I think if it's in the very touristy area, for one thing, it's really likely that the menu is also going to be in English. And it's also likely that the menu is going to be shaped by what the restaurant thinks the tourists who are going to be eating at the restaurant are going to expect. And it will look different from, you know, a, a restaurant that isn't accommodating itself to that. So there, that's just my example of a concrete way that I think, yes, Rome is definitely shaped by tourists and the culture is definitely polluted by the existence of tourists, which isn't to say destroyed. That's too strong. But there's a reason why people avoid the touristy areas. Um, and it's because those areas are, you're kind of reliably going to find performances that are designed for people who don't really understand the thing that they're seeing. Agreed. I think that's entirely right. I just don't think it characterizes tourism by necessity. And I certainly don't think it characterizes travel to the extent you want to make a distinction between travel and tourism. So I guess this is the problem I have. It's not, it's not that there is no truth to these objections. There is obvious truth. Everyone understands the notion of a tourist trap. Everyone understands, like even among tourists, there's this, and I think, Agnes, you've identified this, there, there is this sense of, well, I don't want to be touristy at the same time as I want to see all the things I'm meant to see in a place. There's that sort of paradox, right. that contradiction that's there. So it's not that none of these things is true, it's just that I think I fear for using them to overdetermine the meaning of tourism or the meaning of certainly the meaning of travel. That there are ways to do it, and they're actually quite popular ways to do it, that facilitate something far richer than what is, I think, being caricatured here. And if what you want to do is confine your critique, 
you not being necessarily you, Agnes, I just mean one's critique, to mm-hmm. a particular kind of tourism, then okay, we're having a different conversation at that point. But that's a different thing to saying that travel by its very nature, or if you want to be slightly more modest, tourism by its very nature, is inherently morally retrograde. I just think it's too far to go because you can only end up making that argument when you caricature it, when you describe it in ways that doesn't map onto the way that actually most people or at least quite a lot of people do it. So I, I don't quite agree that it's inherently morally retrograde. That's a little further than I want to go. I My view is just that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. That is, it is it is endowed with a kind of aura of like transformative experience. And I'm just skeptical that the experiences are in fact transformative. When, when I meet my friends after they did some traveling and then I see them again, they don't seem transformed in any way. I don't think I could tell. And so like you may have the sense, oh, I'm so different, but like all the people around you probably think you're exactly the same. And like (laughs) you have a reason to tell yourself that you've been transformed, right? So I would trust their judgment on that. So it's more that I just really doubt this transformative narrative about travel, but I don't think it's like evil or terrible. But as far as the like tourism versus travel, so let's set aside the kind of travel where you actually have a reason to be somewhere. Like say you had to have a surgery somewhere, but it's going to have to be in a foreign country or whatever. Let's just not call that. Let's take that off the table. Basically, anytime you're traveling to a place because you want to see that place that's far from where you are, I'm going to call that tourism. And the reason why I want to use that word is because I do tend to think that we use the word tourism to refer to other people's travels, like I, I travel and everyone else does tourism. Um, and that itself to me is indicative of a certain kind of self-deception that we're in about this thing that we kind of think is bad, but we call it by a special name when we do it so it doesn't sound bad. I, and I think even if you don't go to the touristy parts of Rome, I mean, I was like, those are the parts that are going to be most shaped by tourism. But, you know, say you're going to the like unspoiled places, there is to me, still something, uh, there's almost another problem that shows up there. There's a word that you used, Walid, I think, like enchanted. You can be enchanted by this culture. And like, I don't know if I'm in a culture, I don't know that I want people to be enchanted by me. That is that there's a kind of um, spectatorial distance that is somewhat inhumane. That is like, okay, you could be enchanted when you watch a movie or you read a book about some group of people, but you're actually surrounded by these people and you know they're living their, they're just living their lives. They're not trying to be enchanting. And yet what you're doing is kind of um, looking at them like a picture of humans or like a movie of humans. And the further away you go from the touristy parts of the city, in a way, the more you aggravate that particular problem. Can I just pick up on that point? I, I think that's beautifully put. Agnes. And I think one of the things, again, let me just state really clearly, both for your sake and for Waleed's, I'm not trying to conflate our positions. I realize that mine is somewhat stronger and it just reflects certain things that are wrong with me, quite possibly. <laughs> but I think this, the experience of anybody who has lived, uh, lived in and loved a place and discovers something, as I put it before, something new about it constantly. And something new about the people that inhabit it constantly. I've been in this country for 32 years. And there are things that I'm discovering constantly that I'm ashamed of just how ignorant I was previously. 
the idea that you can skim over the top, even moving off the tourist sites, that you can, I mean, even appreciate a particular cultural expression in a manner that is going to be anything other than the barest taste, the slightest impression about what it is that is distinctive. The idea that that's going to convey knowledge or understanding in any form, in, in any form that's going to leave you changed as a result, that I think is the thing that leaves me not just dubious, but to some extent speechless. I, I have a very hard time with the very idea of persons as commodities or living pictures and of cultures as things that are offered for a kind of temporary indulgence or a temporary glance or view, and then leaving as the result. And when I think about what might justify that transaction, people as commodities, places as something to be sort of spectated or, or consumed, I wonder what would be the change or the gain that would justify everything that goes along with the act of taking temporarily leisured people to those places and having cultures having to adapt themselves to the arrival of people in whatever numbers they might be. I, I just can't see that the, that the gain is worth the overall cost. Hey, we're just reaching a point where I don't really know what to say. Can I make an argument on Walid's side? Please. <laughs> um, so this might be too restricted to make you happy, but... Um, you know, my son, my 14-year-old son just spent a month in Germany, and it was like his first big travel. And he's the kind of kid who live texts his whole experience. So, you know, within a day, we were hearing from, as soon as he got off the plane, we were hearing from him. And he was just shocked by how everyone really genuinely actually spoke German. Like, he kind of <laughs> didn't believe that was really going to be the case, that, like, this wasn't a joke. They're really doing this thing. They're all just talking all the time, constantly. Like, they never stop. And they talk it to him as though he understands. He's been taking German in school for, I don't know, six years, you know. He's like, they keep talking German to me as though I'm going to understand them. He had been sitting there in German class, being spoken German to, right, and having the German teacher and all this stuff. And it was nothing like going there and just seeing people using the language as, like, this is the normal talking for them. And I do think that was like a huge shock and a piece of knowledge that he couldn't have gotten any other way. Hmm. And it's revelatory in its nature, right? And I suppose what you would have to say is he went into that situation as a, in a state of ignorance. So it was precisely his ignorance that made that so profound, right? But, but it's also the experience of immersion, is it not? Yeah, but he could pick that up in half an hour. And that's not immersion in the sense that you're calling for, where I'm still learning things after 32 years. I just think you're setting the bar in a place that's pointless. Because if, you, if you're going to say, unless I'm getting the full experience with like a depth of knowledge that you can only gather over a lifetime, then effectively there's no point in me having that exchange at all in any kind, tasting the food or whatever it might be, because whatever conclusions I'll draw will be based on nothing. Okay, so I, I don't see that as an argument against it. The fact that what you're experiencing might be a shallow version of it isn't an argument against experiencing it. It's an argument perhaps for recognizing the limitations on what you're experiencing and being perhaps tentative with some of the conclusions you might be able to draw. Sure. But that's not the same thing as saying that there's, there's insufficient or no value to these sorts of exchanges. Similarly with the argument about it doesn't transform people. 
Well, who said that something needs to be transformative in order to be valuable? I'm rarely transformed after reading a book. Does that mean reading is not valuable? Sometimes I'm reaffirmed by my reading or by my travel. That's That itself has its kind of value. I don't need to be changed. I think there are just so many assumptions here about what it is that would be necessary to justify this particular thing as opposed to that particular thing. And maybe what it is that's driving that is kind of what Agnes is saying, is that travel gets imbued with a kind of esteem or people who travel a lot like to imbue themselves with a kind of like status or whatever, as though the fact they travel is, you know, self-evident. It's it's sort of it's self justifying evidence as to you know their virtue or they are cosmopolitan whatever. as a result. Yeah, and so if you want to critique that, I'm all for that. Like that, that's fine. It's just where it extends into some kind of argument against the whole enterprise that I think I just think either has to mischaracterize travel or, or put demands on it that are unreasonable. I mean, sometimes what you notice most when you travel are not the differences. It's not the exoticisms. It's the commonalities. There's a certain value in that, right? It might be a mundane commonality, but there is a certain value in that. One of the things I travel most, and I, you know, perhaps I look for this particularly because it's a Quranic imperative. One of the things I value most is how human might is so ephemeral. This is what you get when you go to Rome or you go to less, probably less so Greece actually, or when you go to Egypt, certainly or whatever, is you just say, how colossal was this? And how vanquished is it? <laughs> There's a certain smallness of the human being that emerges from these things, even though they're wonders, right? It's like, what, what became of them, right? That should cause the thoughtful person to reflect on their own ephemerality, right? The benefits are so many and so varied and so on that I think just to say, well, you can't gain in a week of exchanged inauthenticities what you would gain in a lifetime, I just don't know that it answers anything. I don't know that it answers the charge. Mm. So I feel like in, you know, in my piece, I discuss sort of two arguments, two negative arguments, sort of uh, debunking or something, the value of travel. And we've covered one of them, which is the kind of the idea of you're connecting to the common sea of humanity and this worry that, in fact, you're not doing that. You're kind of sharing a space with people to whom you don't share an ethical connection, right? Okay, we've talked about that. But the other one is about experience. And it's about like having special experiences that you wouldn't otherwise have, like sensory experiences, um, seeing art, you know, music, food, whatever, right? And so I find this to be an interesting interesting thought that uh, that Walker Percy develops, which is that insofar as we are trying to have a sense experience of a kind that we don't ordinarily have uh, and that we're even kind of pushing ourselves in those directions. And I gave the example of organ concerts because I think that like most people would only attend an organ concert when they're traveling, otherwise we're not considered <laughs> going to one. And somehow yeah. when we're traveling, we love organ concerts, right? Yeah. Um, but also museums, which people are much more likely to go to when they're traveling. That in effect, we don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear the experience that we're putting in front of us. And we know that. And we're sort of in this quixotic condition of trying to have an authentic experience, but we don't have the faculties for even being able to appreciate or understand the authentic experience. I'm interested in hearing mm. your thoughts about that. I think that's true. I just think it's, a, again, it becomes a question of exactly where you want to set the bar. 
right? So, I mean, I think your falconry example was brilliant in the essay, right? You, in the Was it in the UAE, in Abu Dhabi? Yeah. And you, you go along to, uh, I mean, you're better at telling the story than me. Perhaps you should explain it briefly. Okay. So I was in um, Abu Dhabi for a conference and I got this like emailed list of like, here are some things to do in Abu Dhabi. And one of them was this falconry hospital. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And yeah, basically you go through and you give a, you get a tour of the hospital and learn that they teach you some stuff about falcons. And then at some point they, they put a falcon on my arm and I took this picture. And I, I remember actually being like a bit almost like disembodied. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I? I don't, I hate animals. I don't like to be near them. Uh, like, why didn't I say, no, thank you. I don't want a falcon on my arm. But I think there's this weird sort of passivity when you're a tourist where you're like, but that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm on this line and we're going along and everyone's getting a falcon on their arm. And that's what I got to do too. And so it's almost like a sort of disembodied experience. Um, And I mentioned in the piece that I noticed that there were these like tourism awards on the wall of the hospital. It's a hospital, right? But clearly it's become such an attraction that it is now geared. It's like they've rebranded in some way towards tourists. Sure. And as long as falcons are still getting treated, I don't know that I have a problem with that. I, I think that your distillation of that is brilliant, right? And the passivity, yeah, you could look at it as passivity or you could look at it as deference. You know, Falcon's mm-hmm. actually a really big deal in Arabian culture. You're unlikely to experience it any other way. It may well be true, as I think you put in your piece, that your falconry experience afterwards will be the same as before, which is zero. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but I wouldn't say you've had zero interaction, though, with something that mattered to that culture. They've packaged it in a way that's easier for you to access in a short period of time. It might be inauthentic in some kind of absolute sense, but it's not as though nothing real was being transmitted there. You probably never thought about falconry before. Now it's on your radar at the very least, right? You might, when someone writes something or there's a documentary about falconry that turns up later than that, you might be more inclined to watch that now. In other words, I think what happens when you do travel, and you, you're right, we, we don't have the lens or the formation or whatever to appreciate fully what, what it is we're seeing. But I think there is some, an element of going to a city and I'm going to see what this city does, what it says is important about itself. And part of the tourism thing is that as well, right? It's countries or whatever package their culture for tourists. I accept that that's true, but the thing they're packaging starts out as the stuff they do or the stuff that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I think people go to the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay in Paris or whatever is that there is something about art in Paris, right? That is, there is, that is an organic expression. Organic is probably not the right word. It's an expression of something that is organic, right? This was a seat of this thing, right? And so it can trigger mm. an interest or at the very least it can open you to see that, oh, okay, this is what these people value in a way. If someone comes to Melbourne you won't have to go very far before someone will say, you have to see the MCG. I don't expect you, when you come to Melbourne and are shunted into the MCG, to appreciate it in the way that a Melbourneian would. But I'm nonetheless proud that you've seen it because it's an expression of, of us. It's something of us that you will then be able to say, wow, they really seem to care about this. And even if that's all you take away, I, I'm kind I of went glad to you've Melbourne. taken that away. I went to Melbourne. I'm afraid I don't know what the MCG is, so I right. suspect so I now, didn't see it. What is it? So, so now we have a general. Now we have a real problem, Agnes. Right? The MCG is the Melbourne Cricket Ground. It's it's the biggest stadium, 
I think if you live in Melbourne, you have to refer to it as the mighty MCG. It's the greatest stadium in the world, basically. Melbournians are very proud of it. It's at the centre of so much Melbournian culture. But the fact, if you went and did a tour there, or you went Mm -hmm. to a game and had no idea what you were seeing, I'm not hurt by that. I don't feel like I'm being turned into a commodity and consumed. I'm kind of proud that at least you had some exposure to it. So I think to some extent what we're disagreeing about are the standards that we want to impose on what people derive from travel. Not quite. Can I just say one last thing in conclusion? I'll try to be extremely brief. Look, what you both said is undoubtedly true, and I'm not trying to hold up an unrealistic standard. This transmission of knowledge or of understanding has to take place, otherwise the entire exchange is moot. That's not at all. I think there is a deleterious effect that is had on, again, I'll put it in this pathetic way, on the soul of the tourist. When you go someplace else, and that really is someplace else. I mean, I've lived in places where I did not speak the language and the feeling of powerlessness of a culture, if you like, that turned its back on you and made you work hard to become part of it or even to function in any way within it. There is something about that that is humiliating, that is also humbling, uh, that's also part of the activity, part of the strenuousness, I think, of genuine commerce with other human beings, with other cultures. But when a tourist has the experience of a culture that is other than him or herself, turning itself towards the tourist, offering itself up, saying, you've come this far to us, but now the rest of the way, we will offer ourselves to you so that you don't feel too much out of place. This, the experience on the part of the tourist of something existing for my sake, for my enjoyment, for my consumption, I don't think that's a morally beneficial experience when it tends to smooth over to an extent that is, I think, unconscionable, the depth that that culture ought to represent for us, and the extent to which any proper recognition of or appreciation of something that is not us, that is unfamiliar to us, ought to invite the recognition of a kind of depth that is beyond my reach for now, at least. There is something about that experience that is, I believe, far more humbling or that ought to be more humbling than even looking upon the mighty Colosseum. So, it's not so much that I'm saying I'm not, it's not so much that I'm saying that there has to be a full transmission, a full communicative act, or else there is none at all. I'm it's still saying, a question of extent, though, right? Because the fact that people meet in the middle somewhere, I think, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, what but you're describing I think in the end, probably, it's not meeting in the middle. It's not meeting. Yeah, okay. So this is what I'm saying. It just becomes a question of extent. That's, I think, what we're arguing over. But I think and then for the, for the experience of the tourist to come home and to be self-congratulatory, yes, they really must like us, don't they? I think there's something no, about okay, that. Okay, so you're critiquing, this is what I'm saying, you're critiquing something else. You're critiquing the cultural, I don't know, capital that might accrue to tourists or the way that certain tourists might talk about themselves or whatever. That's a different thing. I would join you on a lot of those critiques. But I think to critique travel in and of itself for that reason... I don't know. I don't find that persuasive. Agnes, I'll I'll give the last word to you because I I suspect you find Scott's position at least a little more persuasive than I do. I'll tell you that I got a lot of responses to this piece and a lot of people are very upset by it. And the people that wrote to me very upset and saying, no, my travels really are special and different and transformative, et cetera. Like I just, I just didn't find their descriptions 
compelling. And I found that like the thing you were saying, Waleed, where you were, where Scott first said, okay, explain what's good about travel. And you're like, it's going to come out like a cliche. That is how it comes out on the one hand. On the other hand, there's a small subset of people who wrote to me who are the Falcon lovers who are like, look, lady, okay, travel sucks. It's stupid. But Falcons are amazing. <laughs> I go, I go uh, once every two weeks, I drive to this place just to go near, be near this Falcon. And that was pretty compelling. The Falcon lovers, it, it really was clear to me that there was something that they love that they could talk about that was like a real substantive thing that they could talk about without cliches. And I almost wonder whether one of the problems with travel is just as a category, it's kind of nothing. <laughs> like it's mm. kind of, what do all travel experiences have in common? Locomotion, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> distance. And so there's a weird way in which the defender of travel is put at a disadvantage because they have to defend their love of something that maybe isn't really anything. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, the only thing I would say in response to that is I've done Falcon travel in the form of sport travel, right? So I go to Liverpool occasionally and watch a game. It's I'm deeply embedded in the thing. I follow it the way someone who loves Falcons would follow Falcon stuff. And I've done other travel where I go to somewhere completely unfamiliar. I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable saying one was a superior form of travel to the other. Mm. Um, they're different. They are different, and you might prefer one to another, but I'm not sure as someone who has the subjective experience of both, I would say I can say one is better. Mm. Anyway, we're just in a world of subjectivities now, and I should probably shut up before I get myself into more trouble. It's been fun being outnumbered <laughs> on the show. It doesn't happen that often, actually, so it's been good fun. And if I'm going to be outnumbered, it's good to be outnumbered by Scott and Agnes. Agnes, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you can come on pretty much any time you like. <laughs> Thank you. She just can't do it in studio, Scott, because that would involve travel. Agnes Callard is Associate <laughs> Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Hello, if you're into the kind of ethical dilemmas posed by the minefield, come and check out my podcast to explore the kinds of beliefs that underpin them. It's called Headroom, the Belief Series with me, James Valentine. And it was so much fun to learn and to challenge ourselves and then also challenge society just by existing. I've got guests like Gina Chick, Richard Feidler, Janet Albrechtson and George Miller, for example, exploring what they believe about life. Find Headroom, the Belief Series on the ABC Listen app.